Let us pray for illumination. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us glad with the joy of your presence as we bow humbly before the teaching of your word. Come to us through your word and greet us with rich blessings. May its teaching be a crown of pure gold that you place on our heads. And under the way of your authority, teach us to exercise our authority with courage, grace and humility. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's read the scripture reading, Psalm 21, page 553 in the Red Bibles. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed the crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unended blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. This is the word of the Lord. Question of the morning. What makes a good king? I don't know if I'm qualified to answer this question, considering I come from a republic. My home country, of course, doesn't have a king. We revolted against a king and set up a republic instead. So who am I to say anything about this? At the same time, for better or worse, um, our presidents, they, they tend to have a lot of the functions of a king. Their job is at least in part, to enforce the laws of the country and also to protect the country from foreign threats. Now, speaking of American politicians, um, my German teacher uh, taught our class this German word, Fremdschamen, Fremdschamen. Do you know of, that, of this? This is when you're, if I get this right, this is when you're ashamed for someone else. They don't know enough to be ashamed for themselves, so you're ashamed for them, right? And my German teacher was quick to point out that American politicians are often the best example of this sort of thing. And this is why, of course, Americans living in Europe sometimes um, pretend that they're from Canada. 
I like to think that when you read the Old Testament, depending on who is on the throne in Israel, sometimes the Israelites must have had some friend shaman about their kings, right? Sometimes not, sometimes they're proud, but sometimes they're a little shamed of who is sitting up on the throne and what they're up to. But not, not here in Psalm 21. Let me ask you to pull your Bibles out again and have it on your lap as we explore Psalm 21. This psalm is not from shaman. This psalm is a celebration instead of the king, of David's success, especially his success in protecting his country uh, from foreign threats. And this psalm seems to deal with God's work through God's king in three different dimensions. God's work through the king in the recent past. God's work through the king in the present. And then God's blessings and work through the king that take place in the future. Let's look at each of these, shall we? First, this song celebrates on the most obvious superficial level, what God has done through his king in the very recent past. So look at verse five. Through the victories you gave, Lord, David's glory is great. You, Lord, have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. So the people are recognizing that God gave David his victory. And it's as if they're singing to the Lord, Lord, even as we celebrate David today and what you've done in his life, we're also celebrating you, what you have done in David to protect us, to save us. So they're celebrating the victory that God gave to David. What else in the recent past are they singing about? Let's go just a little deeper, shall we? They're also singing about the fact that God has showered David with his own pleasure. Look at verse three. You, Lord, you came out to greet him with rich blessings, and you've placed a crown of pure gold on his head. Now, in the ancient world, if any king and his army won a battle, the army would return to their home city. And as they were returning, what did the people do? They went outside of the city and they greeted the army and the king as they were returning and they cheered them and and spread Uh, flowers and things at their feet. They met the conquering king and they cheered him on in, thanking him and the army for all that they had done. Now, no doubt, when David won this great battle that they're singing about, the people of Jerusalem must have done that. They must have gone outside the city and brought the king back in with cheers. But look at verse three here. That's not exactly what they're singing about, is it? Sure, they did that. But they're not singing about their cheers. They're saying, 
that it's actually Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, who went out of the city and met David and greeted him and welcomed him back into the city with cheers of praise, who crowned the conquering king with this crown of pure gold. You know, when Napoleon Bonaparte became emperor of the French, instead of kneeling in the traditional cathedral, having the bishop put the crown on his head, he did things a little differently. He had his celebration in Notre Dame in Paris, and he had the Pope there to say a couple words, but then when it came time for the crown, guess what Napoleon did? He took off his wreath from his head, he grabbed the crown off of the altar, and he put it on his own head while he was standing up. Not David. Not David. David kneels and bows low and receives, even after his victory, receives a crown from the Lord God himself. And so Israel celebrates, even while God himself is saying to David, well done, good and faithful servant, as David kneels there on the ground outside the city. And there's actually, Napoleon wouldn't know about this, but there's actually no greater pleasure for a human being made in God's image than to bow low and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, come from the mouth of God. But then, still, on a deeper level, what are they celebrating about what God has done with this king in the recent past? They're not just singing about how God gave David victory, they are. And how the Lord showered David with his own pleasure, they are though. But the third thing that they're singing about is actually how God had shaped David's own heart. Look at verse 2. You, Lord, you granted him his heart's desire. You gave him the requests of his lips. What's going on here? You see, when the Lord gives us what we ask for, we actually have two things to be thankful for. It's not just, thanks, Lord, for saying yes to my prayers. But it's also, thank you, Lord, for shaping my heart so that it would ask for something that would honor you. Thanks for changing my heart so that the success that you give to me isn't going to make me proud and arrogant, but is going to humble me into deeper levels of service to you. Friends, so much of your Christian life is learning to ask for what is close to the Father's heart. And it's also learning to ask bit by bit for things with such humility that God can actually safely give them to you without those things ruining you in pride and arrogance. And God has to do this in our lives, in our hearts. He did it for David. And this is just as big of a victory 
as any military victory of David's. And the people of Israel celebrated that as well. So the psalm celebrates what David, what God did for David in the recent past. Victory, God's taking pleasure in him, and God's changing his heart. But we said the psalm is also celebrating something about the future. What God will do in the future. Look what else David had asked for. It wasn't just victory in battle, was it? Verse 6. Lord, David had prayed, don't just give me victory today in this battle, but give me unending blessings. Verse 4. Lord, don't just give me a long life. I don't want to just survive this battle and then live a few more years. Give me length of days forever and ever. And this is one of these strange instances where the psalmist, where David, whether he knows it or not, is actually asking for eternal life. God had, of course, promised David that a king would sit on his throne forever and ever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so David, of course, knows and believes, yeah, someone from my family will always be on the throne. And in that way, David probably prays, I could live forever through my family. But when the Lord gets a hold of our hearts, yes, he brings us to that place of humility where he can say yes to our prayers. But when he gets a hold of our hearts, he also brings us to a place where he doesn't just say yes, but he can also say yes and there's even more for you. David, the Lord says, as the Bible story continues to unfold, David, you're not just going to live through your descendants, but I'm going to give you a life, you a life that will never end. You know what I think is happening right here in this psalm with David, this morning with me, with you. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into the hearts of women and men. We don't always feel like we are meant for eternity, but it's there, the desire to go on living, to not die. And it's there, the reality that we were made to live forever. And as John's gospel especially helps us to see, it's as though growing in our relationship with the Lord, growing as a follower of Jesus, is as simple as realizing that eternal life in Christ for us has already begun. Realizing that every day for a Christian believer is a new chance to believe in and then to live from the eternal life that's already ours in Christ. And so the psalm sings of God's grace in the recent past, God's victory in David's battles and in David's own heart. It sings of 
the gracious gift for the future, eternity, for David's throne, and even for David himself. So that leaves the present, the present. What are the people singing about that God might do for them today and tomorrow? What's interesting here is that verses 8 through 12, it, at, the, at the beginning of verse 8, it's like this, this chorus, the singers turn, and instead of praying and praising God, they turn now and they face the king, and they sing to the king. And they're singing a song of encouragement to the king. You might think, why does the king need encouragement? He's apparently you know, winning his battles left and right. Well, because, verse 8, he's still got enemies, even after the battle. There remain battles for him to win and to fight. There are still, verse 11, there are still foes out there who are plotting all kinds of evil against him. And so David needs encouragement even after a great victory. You know, if you happen to be someone who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ, uh, I'm glad you're here. But I think that maybe one of the hardest things for you to accept in your heart is this claim of us Christians that you actually can't win the battle against the evil that's inside of you and the evil that's surrounding you. But here's the other thing. If you're sitting here this morning and you do trust in Christ, one of the hardest things for us preacher types to convince your heart of is to really believe that with Christ at your side, you really can win battles against the evil that's inside of you and the evil that's around you. With the smile of your father waiting for you to return from battle, with the words of blessing on the tip of his tongue ready to be spoken to you when you return, with a crown of righteousness, pure gold, ready to put on your head when you come home. With Jesus, you aren't helpless, friends, against sin and temptation. You just aren't. You're not helpless against despair and bitterness, against laziness, against anger, against rage, against jealousy, against envy. Why are you not helpless against these things? Because, as Paul says, thanks be to God, even though here I am in this body that feels like death, thanks be to God, because he gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has won the battle for us, past. And he has guaranteed that the whole war now belongs to him, future. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? for you and me as we get up out of bed tomorrow to fight another day, to fight for righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, to be worked out in our lives, to be worked through our attitudes and our words and our actions all day long for his glory and for our good.
Jesus has won, and that makes all the difference. You might ask yourself, really? Can I really rely on God's victory in Christ to empower me in my daily battles? Is God really trustworthy as our hero and soldier and savior? David and his people believed it all those years ago, sure, but can we really believe it today? Well, we can, and we really must. And the reason that we can and must is because Jesus himself has sung in his very own voice and with his life, Psalm 21, for us and then with us. How? Well, God the Son, of course, was almighty for all eternity past. And then in the fullness of time, he became a baby and then a boy and then finally a man. He entered into our weakness and our frailty and our need. Think about this. Jesus had to learn to pray as a man. You know, it's one thing for Jesus, it's natural, of course, for him to speak to his eternal father as God the eternal son. No problem. Equal in power and glory, they know how to have that conversation. But it's another thing, isn't it, for Jesus to pray in our human flesh, in our frail, weak human flesh, our flesh that faces temptation, that feels its weakness every day. Now, most of us, they say, if it doesn't kill us, it makes us stronger, right? Most of us, if we're weak and we just persevere, then we do grow stronger. But even though Jesus always, at every opportunity, persevered through all of that temptation, he is ultimately not made stronger, but weaker. And he's stripped of all of his strength. The Lord Jesus went to the cross and he became so weak that mystery of mysteries, the author of life himself, actually lost his life in utter weakness. Think of him there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the time before he was betrayed by his friend. And he prays to his father. He must have prayed something like, verse 3, Father, I'm going out to battle now. And I want to win this horrible victory at the cross. But promise me, Father, promise me that when I do, that you will come back out and that you will meet me. Promise me, Father, that you'll crown me with a crown of pure gold. Promise me most of all, Father, that if I go out to this battle, that when I come back, you'll tell me that I am your dear son, whom you loved, whom you still love, and that you delight in me above all things. You know, the crowds ran out to greet the Lord Jesus, didn't they, on Palm Sunday as he was coming into the city to hail him their king. But it was later that week that the father actually called him to go out and face battle outside of the city walls to Calvary. And he goes there and wins us a victory in a strange way. He lays down his life 
And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my very spirit. This is his way of trusting that his father will in fact sing, verse 4. Jesus, son, you asked for life, and I'm going to give it to you forever and ever. When Jesus trusts his life to his father and is obedient, even to death on the cross, he is trusting, isn't he, that the cross and the grave are not the end for him. He's trusting that his father will raise him, will vindicate him, trusting that his father will say, verse 5, through the victory that I am giving you, your glory will be great. You know, the New Testament is really interesting when it comes to the question, who did the resurrection of Jesus? Like, who did it? Sometimes it says that Jesus rose. He is risen, right? But other times it says that it was God the Father who raised him from the dead. Sometimes it says that it was the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. And I think actually this is marvelous, stunning in fact. Who won David's victory? Psalm 21. Answer, God and David. And David through God. And God through David. Who won Jesus' victory? God the Father did. And the Spirit. Oh, and Jesus won his victory as well. Jesus, of course, through his Father and the Spirit. But also, Father and Spirit have won the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who wins your battles when you're tempted to be harsh instead of gentle? When you're tempted and you persevere and you're able to forgive instead of holding a grudge? When you're able to be grateful when maybe your old self would have been envious instead? Who wins your big battles over the temptation to be proud instead of humble? Fearful instead of courage or courageous. Bitter instead of joyful. Who wins these battles of yours? Well, Jesus. And you. And Jesus through you. And you through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus, then you have a decisive victory in the past. One for you. By King Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have the promise of a future with never ending blessings, of a victory that will keep getting more victorious throughout all eternity. And if you're in Jesus Christ today and tomorrow when you wake up and try to serve Him, then you can wake up and try to serve Him with every temptation on the inside and on the outside. Every temptation calling you to just live for yourself and crown yourself king. And you can say, no, I will humbly bow and I will fight that I might win the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ, the real king. Appear, friends, verse 9, appear for battle, clothed, 
in the armor of Christ. When you wake up tomorrow bringing all the power of Christ's royal victory with you, all of the security of your eternal life with King Jesus with you, then stand up in his strength and go to battle against the evil inside and around you. Not fighting, as Paul reminds us, people, flesh and blood, but fighting against evil within and without in the power of Jesus Christ. I've been going to England for a couple of years now for study, and I've noticed that in almost every town there is a pub that's called the Lamb and Flag. Have you seen these pubs in England? The Lamb and Flag. One of the oldest ones is in, um, I've forgotten the name of the neighborhood. That's okay, it doesn't matter, in, in London. And usually on the logos for these pubs, sometimes on the beer steins themselves, it'll have the lamb holding a flag, and then it will have this slogan written on it. It will say, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. And you're thinking to yourself, am I in a pub or am I in a church? This is really strange. And they're all over England. It's actually also the slogan of the Moravian church. I'm not saying to go to the pub and remind yourself of this, but I am saying that you need to look the lamb, your conquering king, in the eye and see him carrying the standard and remind yourself, our lamb, King Jesus, has conquered in his life and in his death and in his glorious resurrection. And so let us follow him, for in him the victory is ours. And in us and in our life, the victory is his. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make all of this more than possible, but actual in our lives. We want to follow our king wherever he leads, and we want to be strong in his strength, even despite our weakness. By the power of your spirit, remind us of all he's done, all he's promised, and then bring us into the next week, ready to love and serve him as we love and serve others in his name. For his honor and glory, we ask it. Amen.